0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. President Joe Biden now on his first foreign trip since taking office and one high-stakes meeting occurring in Geneva, Switzerland, when he sits down with Russian President Vladimir Putin. From that country's military exercises along its border with the neighboring Ukraine to a series of cyber attacks with Russian ties, it will be a full agenda with a lot at stake. Two months ago, President Biden announced a series of sanctions against Russia for its interference in the 2020 election. He talked about the state of relations between our two countries and how specifically he would deal with Vladimir Putin. This from April 15th at the White House.
1: I expressed concern about Russia's military buildup on Ukraine's border and and in occupied Crimea. I affirmed U.S. support for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. And I strongly urge him to refrain from any military action. Now is the time to de-escalate. The way forward is through thoughtful dialogue and diplomatic process. The U.S. is prepared to continue constructively to move forward that process. My bottom line is this. Where there's an interest in the United States to work with Russia, we should and we will Where Russia seeks to violate the interests of the United States, we will respond. We'll always stand in defense of our country, our institutions, our people, and our allies. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Mr. President, did President Putin give you any indication in that call that he is willing to change his behavior?
1: We indicated we would talk about it. I laid out, as I said, very simply. I told, I said during the campaign, I said when he called to congratulate me on being elected. I said subsequent to that, this last conversation, that if it turned out that he was engaged in the activities that he'd been accused of in cybersecurity and solar winds and interfering in our elections, that I would respond in kind. I urged him to respond appropriately, not to exceed it, because we can move as well. My hope and expectation is we'll be able to work out a modus vivendi, uh, but it's important that we have direct talks and that we continue to be in contact with one another.
0: That was President Biden in mid-April. The face-to-face meeting between the U.S. and Russian president, it will take place in Geneva, Switzerland. So what is the state of relations between our two countries? How is this summit being viewed in Russia? And will there be any significant results when the discussions conclude? Questions I pose to Dr. Alina Polyakova. She's an expert on the region, the president of the Center for European Policy Analysis here in Washington. I began by asking her how President Biden should approach the talks with Vladimir Putin.
2: Well, Steve, certainly this is not going to be a, a comfortable meeting uh, between two leaders. We know that uh, President Putin has basically done the same thing with every single summit with the U.S. president. He's read a litany of complaints about U.S. misdeeds and has basically placed all the blame for the very bad relationship between the United States and Russia today on the United States. I think how President Biden should be approaching it is understanding that in reality, we may, as the United States, want a stable and reliable relationship with Russia, which is what President Biden and others in the White House have said. But the Russian side is not interested The Russian side seeks to have a purposely destabilizing and unreliable uh, agenda when it comes to its foreign policy. And Of course, we've seen that play out in all kinds of different ways over the last uh, 10 years or so. So I think for, for the U.S. president, it's important to stake out what our position is, what is our agenda, and not let President Putin set the agenda, as he has done so many times before.
0: And based on your own expertise, how can we best understand Vladimir Putin, not only his leadership role, but also his personality and how he views the world through the eyes of the Russian people?
2: Well, I would say uh, Vladimir Putin only views the world from his own interests, from his own eyes, and not through the eyes of the Russian people, because a lot of the uh, actions that The kremlin has taken since president putin came to power over 20 years ago have not actually benefited the livelihoods of russian citizens uh but the way mr putin sees the world is uh in terms of competition and he sees uh their own position meaning the russian position as a country that needs to be hooked up with another great power uh, meaning, in this case, China. He sees the United States on the decline. He's very interested in ensuring that decline proceeds faster and faster so that Russia can emerge higher and higher uh, because Russia itself does not have the c- capability to outcompete. The United States, certainly not. The United States together with its allies. And so it's truly really the zero-sum game where, well, if we can't win in all these different spheres of competition, with the United States and Europe, then at least we can make sure that we can push our competitors down just just a bit so we come out on top. And that kind of zero-sum view of the world has very much defined uh, Mr. Putin's foreign policy uh, basically since he uh, came to the Russian presidency um, in 2000.
0: And so let's take that one step further because we have been seeing so many... Connections between the dark side and other Russian bad actors, and what's been happening here in the U.S. with cybersecurity and ransomware. From your standpoint, is Vladimir Putin behind this? Is that part of his approach to, as you put it, push America on the decline?
2: Um, absolutely. I think there's no question about that at this point. You know, we've seen uh, the Russian government uh, really deploy what some call a uh, hybrid warfare or proxy warfare. Against the United States and our allies, it's what we meet, What I mean by that is that we don't need to have, you know, Russian troops at our border or Russian nuclear warheads uh, pointed at Washington or any other American city uh, to still be under attack. And we've seen those kinds of attacks in this below-military space. You know, just in the last weeks, uh, we have had two major uh, cyber attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure. Uh, That has affected the livelihoods of of Americans when they weren't able to buy gas at the pump, for example, um, uh, that disrupted supply chains. And, you know, frankly, the Russians say, well, in these two cases, these are cyber criminals. We're not responsible, even though they may be living in Russia. Well, um, in the past, uh, the U.S. has been very clear that when it comes to terrorist cells, uh, we do not tolerate countries that harbor uh, terrorist organizations that have maligned and malign agenda towards the United States. I think we have to take that same approach now uh, with cyber criminal groups. So a country that harbors these kinds of groups, like Russia does, should be responsible for making sure weeds them out. But of course this is not in the Kremlin's interest. The Kremlin's interest is to make sure that there is continued disruption, chaos, and destabilization that continues to affect the United States and our allies because they see that as serving a broader foreign policy agenda.
0: So based on that, what's your biggest concern? What What would worry you the most in terms of the implications that these cyber threats have on the United States and Western democracies?
2: Well, obviously, as many Americans, I'm very concerned uh, about the vulnerabilities that these kinds of attacks have revealed um, in our own critical infrastructure systems, um, not just within the U.S. government, although we certainly have seen uh, you know, hacks of U.S. government agencies as well, now going back to the very well-documented document, hacks that happened in the 2016 election, but we've seen many since then, um, and also on private companies. You know, in some ways, um, you know, I think we just really weren't prepared for a war that is already here. I think we've been living in a world, um, many Americans probably, as well as uh, the U.S. government in some ways, um, that is a 20th century world. A world that we define war by um, military uh, engagements and battles on, on the battlefield. But the, but now I think we have to see very, very clearly that that's really not 21st century warfare, nor will we return probably to that vision of warfare that we had from Many centuries ago, in the 20th century as well, that we are living in an age where uh, attacks will continue to happen in the digital domain, first and foremost. And we have been very, very much caught off guard. And I really fear that this is just the beginning. Uh, we know that Russians, the, the Russians, and also others—it's not just about Russia, although they've been most brazen. Others have capabilities to take down power grids, cause loss of life, cause huge loss of wealth, finances um, in the United States and elsewhere. And I think we haven't uh, really even hit uh, the tip of the iceberg here.
0: Our guest is the author of the book, The Dark Side of European Integration. She is the president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis. So what I'm hearing you say, Dr. Polykovia, is that we are in many ways fighting the wrong war.
2: Well, well, yes, in many ways, I think we have been. I think that's exactly the right way to think about it. Um, You know, we as the United States, the United States is a global military power as well. And certainly military strength is uh, part of our ability to project strength in all kinds of various ways across the world, not just vis-a-vis Russia, but in other countries, in the Indo-Pacific, as we think about the rise of China, of course, as a long-term challenge to the United States. Uh, But at the end of the day, Uh, We have been just too slow to understand that, you know, warfare is no longer just about that military aspect. Uh, And I think we need to really wake up to this reality because, like it or not, um, it's already here.
0: There are a number of other issues in play with the former Soviet Union, the developments recently in Belarus, and the president, his recent phone conversation with the president of Ukraine. So how do those two countries fit into the larger issue of U.S.-Russian relations?
2: Well, I think that's an excellent point, because when we talk about Russia, we tend to talk about just the bilateral relationship between the United States and Russia, but uh, it's really not our russia policy isn't just about moscow it really is about these countries that are now finding themselves in this gray zone between nato and europe the countries that are nato member states eu member states on on the one hand and then russia on the other and ukraine and belarus uh, also moldova the Caucasus states uh are part of that so-called gray zone countries that uh have not joined NATO or have not integrated into the EU, uh, but also don't necessarily want to be part of Russia's sphere of influence. But of course, uh, Russia sees countries like Belarus and Ukraine as absolutely critical um, to their own ability to remain a so-called great power. Russia very much sees itself as a great power, even though in many ways it's not, but the perception is certainly there for Mr. Putin Uh, and Belarus and Ukraine from Moscow's perspective, cannot be allowed to move further west, meaning towards Europe, certainly not towards NATO. They must remain within Russia's orbit. Um, And this is so critical to just the Russian psyche and certainly to Mr. Putin's psyche.
0: As you know, this summit uh, is following some key meetings. The president at the G7 summit in Cornwall, England, and then meeting with European Union leaders in Brussels. What does the president need to get from Europe before meeting with Vladimir Putin?
2: I think it would be very wise if President Biden, in the lead up uh, to the summit with Mr. Putin, uh, hammered out some concrete agreements from our allies Uh, to have a more common, more shared and and collaborative approach vis-a-vis Russia. Right now, uh, U.S. allies are very much divided on Russia. Of course, uh, Europe is not only very much in the direct line of combat, if you will. Russia is on the European continent, part of it. Um, Russia is a direct military threat to European countries in a way that it's not a direct military threat to the United States. Um, Russia uh, also... Provides a lot of uh, energy exports to uh, European Union countries. And that has also become a a very, very um, hot debate as to what that really means for European dependency on Russian gas in in particular. Uh, So I think it would be wise for the President to use this opportunity to get the allies on the same page, meaning, that, look, we may want Russia to be a good player on in the international stage, to follow international agreements, but the reality has shown us, and history has shown us, that under Putin, at least, uh, we were, we're never going to get that kind of Russia. So we need to really band together and uh, figure out what are the red lines that we, will, that we will enforce. And just maybe three points on the red lines. You know, one place where we can do a lot more and be very effective if we did this together with allies is on stopping the illicit finance flows. Uh, this is one of the key pillars of how Mr. Putin stays in power and those around him stay in power. Um, it's through stealing money from the Russian people uh, and then hiding it in Western institutions. And we can do a lot more to make sure those kinds of flows are stopped. I think number two, you know, Mr. Biden should absolutely bring up what we've seen happen with Russia's main opposition leader. Uh, Alexei Navalny, who, let's recall, was uh, poisoned over the summer and almost died um, upon his return to Russia after receiving treatment in in Germany, was jailed, um, is being held under Trump charges uh, and wasn't being provided medication, almost died in prison until international pressure really, I think, forced the Kremlin to change course there. But Navalny is just one of many. He's the one that maybe Americans know his name, but the repression we've seen of Russian civil society, independent voices over the course of several years now in Russia has really hit uh, a peak and we can't sa- stand by and just let this happen. We have to take a clear stance as a community of democracies that we will impose you know consequences like perhaps sanctions tied to human rights abuses um, on countries like Russia that continue to violate human rights. Um, and just very lastly, uh, I think the administration could also come into the meeting, Mr. Putin. You know, this is all all my recommendations are based on coming from a position of strength, not from a position of weakness, which is where I think the U.S. president wants to be, um, is to make it clear that also attacks uh, by the Russian government on U- U.S. independent media. I'm speaking specifically here about RFERL, which is an independent media organization uh, that receives funding from the u s Congress uh, journalists who work for RFRL in Russia uh, have been harassed, their offices have been raided uh, they've been labeled a so called foreign agent, which in Russia means they are incapable of operating. Uh, the Russian journalists they work with are um, their lives are at risk, and so far, uh, the administration has been very silent on this. so I think if Mr. Biden is able to make it very clear that there are red lines and these are them and here is what will happen if you continue to cross them. That was send a very, very effective and very different kind of message to President Putin.
0: Let me remind our listeners that we are talking to Doctor Elena Poliakovia. She is a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley where she earned her doctorate. She also studied at Emory University. A frequent guest on C SPAN, also seen on Fox News, CNN and the BBC and her work, her essays available at The Washington Post, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, among other publications. I want to go back to your second point with Alexei Navalny, and you talk about consequences. My question, though, does it make a difference with Vladimir Putin? Even if you put sanctions or consequences, would that motivate him to change his approach to release some of these dissidents?
2: Well, I think we have to focus on what is our agenda, You know, we we can't control Mr. Putin's decision-making. And let's be clear, it is Mr. Putin who called the shots on things like this, about political prisoners, opposition leaders, et cetera. But we have to take a stance. And right now, we haven't taken a stance on these kinds of human rights abuses. So um, regardless of whether uh, Mr. Putin responds and we want him to respond, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue a foreign policy uh, vis-a-vis Russia that is rooted in our own values and principles. So we have no control over what Mr. Putin will do, but that doesn't mean we have to abandon um, our own values.
0: As you know, some critics of the president saying that we are rewarding Vladimir Putin with this summit. Are we?
2: Uh, uh, to be honest, unfortunately, I do think that is the case. Um, and the reason I say that um, is that already for Mr. Putin's uh this summit has been a major pr win in russia domestically um if you watch russian language media in russia the message has been making fun of president biden saying that the u.s has been begging mr putin for a meeting and mr putin's represented as uh, the czar who is weighing whether he should accept the invitation or not obviously that is not the reality uh we are the, I think President Biden suggested the meeting is a sign of goodwill, uh, but that's not how uh, the Russian state-controlled media has been presenting it. Uh, Mr. Putin loves these kinds of opportunities to be seen on the, on the world stage uh, with a great power like the United States. Again, a power that, the US, the Russia, that Russia cannot compete with. But by being at the same level, in the same room with the U.S. president, um, Mr. Putin can really sell himself as a great leader. And it also, uh, to be honest, unfortunately, lends a lot of credibility to all of the kinds of very bad behavior that we've seen from Russia, you know, that despite cyber attacks, despite interference in our elections, despite poisoning of uh, opposition leaders in Russia and repressing voices and so many other misdeeds that we've seen uh, from the Russian uh, Federation over the years, including the annexation of Crimea and other military invasions as well. But despite all that, uh, the U.S. president will still shake Mr. Putin's hand. And so I think, unfortunately, the optics of this um, right now are are not very positive.
0: And from your perspective, has the relationship changed between President Trump to now President Biden?
2: Well, it's, it's too early to say, but, uh, you know, I think Mr. Putin has been in power for now over 20 years, and he has been through many U.S. presidents. And many of those presidents uh, have tried to have some form of a reset in the U.S.-Russia relationship. And every single one, including uh, George W. Bush, who very famously said uh, he looked into President Putin's eyes and saw his soul um, and tried to have a better relationship with Russia after 9-11, that dissolved. Uh, And then, of course, we have the famous reset with President Obama. Um, And what happened at the end of the Bush reset? Russia invaded Georgia. Uh, What happened at the end of the Obama reset? Russia invaded Ukraine. So I think President Biden uh, needs to see this cycle for what it is and and use this as an opportunity to try to end uh, that kind of cycle. Um, So unfortunately, You know, I I don't know exactly. We don't know yet exactly what the policy will be on Russia from the White House. uh, But with this particular leader in the Kremlin, meaning President Putin, it's very, very unlikely much is going to change. He's had 21 years to make up his mind, and his mind has been made out that the United States is not a partner. The United States is a hegemon, and it would be in Russia's interest to see the United States not in a position of strength but in a position of weakness, And that has been their foreign policy ever since.
0: And so based on that, how has President Putin maintained his grip on power across Russia?
2: Well, Russia is no longer uh, any, even close to a democratic society. Uh, You know, President Putin, like uh, uh, Chinese President Xi, is an autocrat. Uh, We don't have free and fair elections. Uh, The Russian government controls the media uh, almost completely outright. Um, the Russian government has also moved quite aggressively, as we're talking about Alexei Navalny, uh, to repress others like him or who may speak out against the government anyway. Uh, they've actually most recently been uh, trying to force American social media companies, which are still able to function inside of Russia, uh, to take down anti-government content because the Russian government has labeled this content as illegal. But this is um, censorship. It is restricted of uh, free speech. Obviously, there is really no such thing as free speech in Russia, and that space is closing faster and faster. So President Putin is able to maintain his grip on power, not because he's the most popular you know, Russian leader that Russian people have ever had. He's just the only one they've ever had. And the reason for that is because he has solidified his grip on power by controlling all these different levers uh, within, within the Russian state.
0: We have talked about your official resume, but what is your personal background?
2: Well, I don't get asked that very often, so thanks for the question. Uh, I was actually born in in the Soviet Union. I was born in Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union, and my family uh, immigrated to the United States as uh, refugees. Uh, Still during the Soviet era, uh, we got out right under the cusp right before uh, Ukraine became independent in 1991. Um, And, you know, I've grown up in the United States ever since then um, and just, you know, very grateful for all the opportunities this country has given me and the opportunity to now be able to to talk to you, Steve, and and to your many listeners.
0: Do you have family in Ukraine still today?
2: Not close family. Um, You know, it's shocking how many people left in the early 1990s from the former Soviet Union, including Russia, including Ukraine. And uh, my family was very much part of that. Uh, wave of uh, emigration from from those countries.
0: And your new title is the president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis, which is what?
2: Uh, so CEPA, as, as we call it, um, is a foreign policy think tank that focuses on ensuring a stable and secure transatlantic relationship between Europe and the United States. And we're based in Washington, D.C., as you said.
0: And the website, by the way, is cepa.org. So let me conclude with the summit with two final questions. First of all, as you look at the body language in Geneva, Switzerland, between President Biden and President Putin, will you be looking for anything? And will there be any tangible results that you think will come out of this summit?
2: Well, let me answer the second question last, first. Um, I, I, I've, I would be very surprised to see anything tangible uh, delivered from the summit uh, because we haven't seen any proposals now i am happy to be surprised to see if if the u.s government is able to negotiate some sort of agreement with our allies with whom president biden will meet right beforehand and present that uh to president putin as a as a common front a united front of the democratic transatlantic community vis-a-vis russia Um, I think it's going to be very difficult to do as the administration has many other priorities, China being number one, issues around technology being uh, top of mind as well. So I think this is really going to be um, an uncomfortable meeting, as I said, in talking about body language, you know, uh, unlike uh, perhaps former President Trump, um, who really enjoyed these kinds of personal meetings with people like Mr. Putin and also others. Um, I think President Biden has dealt with Mr. Putin before. You know, he has been in politics for many years, serving as vice president and working very closely on Ukraine issues. Um, he knows Mr. Putin for years. Um, just recently in an interview, President Biden alluded that he thought Mr. Putin was a killer. So I don't think we're going to see any uh, buddying up and a lot and hugs and things like that uh, between the two leaders. I think it's going to be a cold body language. Um, very neutral faces, uh, not a lot of pleasantries. Uh, I think the two leaders will have a very uh, direct and probably uncomfortable one-on-one meeting before we see the press conference. Uh, So certainly everybody, including myself, will be looking for those kinds of signs to understand how that one-on-one meeting went once we get to the press conference. Uh, But I would be surprised to see a sort of warm relationship there. And certainly I think President Biden wants to stay away from sending those kinds of signals. And for all the reasons we've been talking about uh, regarding how uh, Russia has been such a malign actor vis a vis the United States.
0: So, one final quick follow up. If you could give President Biden one piece of advice before he sits down with Vladimir Putin, what would it be?
2: Uh, well, it may sound cliche, but um, it's. Uh, remember that it can only be effective vis-a-vis Russia coming from a position of strength. And never forget that the U.S. has the leverage to set the agenda and the, and the Russians will follow that agenda if we make it very, very clear that we'll not just stand by and let them uh, continue on as they have been. So I think making, taking a hard line, making very clear what our objectives are, what we're willing to compromise on, what we're not willing to compromise on. Um, And that will not be a comfortable situation for either leader. But unfortunately, I don't see any other way um, that the summit could proceed.
0: Our conversation with Dr. Alina Polyakovia, She is the president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis, joining us here in Washington and a friend of the C-SPAN Networks. Thank you very much for being with us.
2: It was my pleasure, Steve. Thank you.
0: And a reminder, be sure to listen and follow The Weekly wherever you get your favorite podcast. And follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. All of our coverage online anytime at cspan.org. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.